0: I want to take us today a little deeper into understanding conflict uh, as it pertains to the kingdom of God, because if we are not careful, our thinking about Christianity can kind of devolve, and it devolves into something that amounts to American suburban lifestyle choices, and that's a tragic misunderstanding of what the great story of God and humankind is really all about. First, it's, it's a misunderstanding about God. In our day, lots of people kind of assume that God is the, is the heavenly nice guy, right? And you can think that, but you really have to discount the entire Bible in order to do so. If you've read the Bible, then you know otherwise. Uh, what we find throughout the pages of Scripture is this truth. God has a battle to fight, and it's a battle for our freedom. Uh, there's an author by the name of Trevor Longman who wrote this, this is brilliant, he said, virtually every book of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, and almost every page tells us about God's warring activity, his warring activity. I wonder sometimes, I wonder if the Egyptians who kept Israel under the whip, I wonder if they thought about God as the heavenly nice guy. Probably not. Plagues, pestilence, death of the firstborn, that doesn't seem very nice. Remember the wild man, Samson, from the Old Testament? He had a pretty violent resume. Killed a lion with his bare hands. Pummeled 30 Philistines when they used his wife against him. And then finally, after they burned her to death, he killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. That's pretty wild. He's not a guy to mess with. But what's interesting about all of that is when. Those things took place. The Bible says those things took place in Judges 15 when the spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's when that stuff happened. Violence for violence sake is horrible. It's just horrible. I'm just attempting to rescue us from a very mistaken image that we have of God and sometimes of Jesus and therefore us as his image bearers. Listen to what uh, author Dorothy Sayers wrote. Listen to these words. She said, The church has very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, making him a fitting household pet for pious old ladies. (laughs) Is that the God you find in the Bible? No, it is not. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in the dead of night, a mob of thugs, the Bible says carrying torches and lanterns and weapons, they come to take Jesus away. Now notice the cowardice of all this. Why did they take him during the light of day when he was down in the town? And when they do come for him, does Jesus shrink back in fear? No, he does not. He faces them head on, And the reason is because he knew that the mob was not really his enemy at all. He was about to finish his war of love for the people that God loves so much against an unseen enemy that is pulling all the strings. And we're gonna see that clearly today. Stay with me. So the, the church worldwide is incredibly important in the grand scheme of things because it is not only the bride of Christ, but it is the vehicle through which God's purposes are brought about in this world. Now, when I say the church, don't just picture life church, but the church is the sum total of every spirit led gospel preaching church from every nation and every corner of the globe. We're just more familiar with our own church and the church in America. But when it comes to the state of the church in America, the signs are really not very good related to our future. Stay with me. There are now over 200 million non-church people in America making it one of the largest non church nations in the entire world. And there are several studies that corroborate that. Each year, over 6,000 churches close their doors permanently. And they, and today, out of all the churches in America, well, uh, approximately 75% are in decline and are headed for the very same fate of those that close their doors for the final Sunday. Now, it is true that churches are being planted regularly, which is a very, very good thing. Um, Outreach Magazine says that, uh, for the, their estimate for the next few years, is that we'll actually have a net gain of about 4,000 churches, which sounds wonderful, 4,000 brand new churches. But in order to keep up with the population growth of America, we need not 4,000 new churches, but 48,000 new churches. We're growing more and more unchurched every single year. Now, while popular polls will say that uh, Americans uh, say that they (coughs) attend church on Sundays... Uh, at about a rate of about 40%, about 40% of Americans attend a church. Outreach magazine says that the actual truth is not really that close to that. It's really (coughs) closer to about 20%. And the best estimates say that by the year 2050, church attendance will be about half or less than half what it was in 1990. The trend is not very good at all. But listen, ultimately, ultimately, The church is destined for victory. It's destined for victory. We're failing right now because we're living outside of our identity. We've simply forgotten who we are. So I'm going to go back for a few minutes to the words of Jesus to remind us of who we are, and then we can get back on track to fulfilling our God-given destiny. Okay? Now, in the Bible, there is a law that you'll find there that's called the Law of First Mention. The Law of First Mention. And when you see it, it means that when you see a word or a doctrine for the very first time in Scripture, typically it is setting the standard for that word or for that doctrine throughout all the pages of Scripture. I'll give you an example. In Genesis, um, we find two very particular things that occur, and they set the tone for all throughout Scripture. We see a man and a woman in marriage, and then throughout all the Bible, marriage is one man and one woman. Now even though David and Solomon and others were polygamous, and the truth is there are plenty of folks that have experimented all around with this, the truth is that God's plan really was very clear. And then by the time you get to Ephesians 5, the word of God makes it crystal clear that marriage is one man and one woman. It's the law of first mention that's being upheld thousands of years later. So when it's first mentioned in the Bible, it sets the standard. Also in the book of Genesis, you will find a law called the law of dominion. God gave humankind dominion over this world. But in Genesis chapter 3, Satan stole our dominion. Maybe more accurately, humans gave it away. And then later, Jesus comes and restores our dominion. And I want to show you how important this dominion thing is, because it's given to us at the very beginning. It's stolen from us by Satan, and then restored later by Jesus. And this Dominion that has been given to us is intended to be lived out through all our days on this earth and then continue into eternity as we reign with Jesus. So, if the law of first mention is true, and it is, then what did Jesus say about the church in the very beginning? What was the first mention about the church? Jesus was the first person who talked about the church. So, let's start with the first man of the church and what Jesus says about him. This comes from Matthew chapter 11. Jesus speaks and says, Among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. So Jesus is commenting on John the Baptist here. Now remember, Jesus and John were contemporaries. They walk this earth in the same area of the world at the very same time. So Jesus is kind of referring to John the Baptist as the first man of the church age. Say, since the days of John the Baptist until now, because John was a little bit older than Jesus, since the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. He could have said from the days of Abraham until now. could have said from Moses until now. He doesn't say that. He's talking about John the Baptist here. So he's talking about the church age, the church that Jesus was in the midst of establishing on the earth at that time. And you're going to see that the church and spiritual conflict are joined at the hip. They are just everywhere you see one, you kind of see the other. Every place that we see Jesus referring to the church, it's always in the context of conflict and warfare. It's always that the church is moving ahead to establish something. To do something with dominion. Taking ground. Let me say something about Satan. Our enemy. He only responds to aggression. He only responds to aggression. He'll never give you something. Because you ask for it nicely. He doesn't respond to please and thank you. He doesn't give an inch of ground. Unless you take it from him. And we've been given the authority by Christ. To take ground. If we'll only exercise it. Right, that's the first man of the church age, John the Baptist. The first mention of the word church is actually found in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 18. Here's what it says. Jesus speaks here to Peter. He says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to heaven and hell, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So the first mention of the church in the Bible is as a gate-taking force. Gates are stationary objects that are designed to keep some people out and other people in. When Jesus is talking about the gates of hell, he's talking about those places in our world where the enemy has come in and set up some kind of stronghold to keep people in bondage and to try to keep the church out of that place. And here's what Jesus says. Since there's not a gate in your community that you cannot take, the gates of hell cannot withstand you. I'm giving you authority. Any gate that you find can be ripped off of its hinges and behind it you will find precious people that that are in bondage, that I love, and that I die for. We, the church, are a gate-taking force that has been called by God to set people free from the bondage of the enemy. That's who the church really is. That's who the church actually is is that's what we've been called by God to do but we've forgotten that we've forgotten it so you know what we've been preparing for potluck suppers <laughs> and not for warfare we're not doing what God called us to do we're trying to play nice but here's what the Bible says in 1 John 3:8. it says for this reason the son of God has been manifested that he might what's that word Destroy, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's a violent word. That he might destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. He started the gate taking campaign to strike back at the enemy for what he's done, to destroy his works and to end his dominion once and for all. Little sidebar here. <clears throat> the church as a whole is a reflection of its members. Wouldn't you agree with that? The church as I'll show you. Even this church is a reflection of its members. Uh, Lots of you have seen a mosaic before. Kind of a big picture that's made up of individual little tiles that all make up that big image. In the same way, kind of all of us together make up the overall image of our church. I say all that to say this. If if the church, if we as the church are going to grow, then we have to grow this is going to grow, then we have to grow. Like, personally, you and me. Like, no standing still. Look at it this way. The passengers on a cruise ship behave very differently than the passengers on a battleship. Isn't that right? Yeah, on a cruise ship, we're passing the time, we're talking about our next meal, we're looking around for stuff that will amuse us. On a battleship, it's quite different. Each person is vital. They have a purpose there. They have an assignment, and they have a goal. It's mission-oriented. And listen, a byproduct of this mission, a byproduct of this shoulder-to-shoulder laboring, is deep friendships. It comes because of a shared mission. In other words, nobody joins the Navy, and when the interviewer asks them, why are you joining the Navy? Nobody says, I don't know. I just kind of feel like I could find a friend here. (laughs) That's not how they answer. No, there's there's a purpose. They join for a purpose. There's a mission. There's an assignment. There's a role. And they will be both helped and expected to grow in that role, right? To progress. They'll progress in their skills and their ability to do what they're called to do. Stay with me. In our universe, um, all matter exists in three states. Dynamic, static, and entropic. Dynamic energy is energy that's growing. That is to say, if there's a flower that's growing, that's dynamic energy. A flower that stops growing is static. A flower that's dying is entropic. And Jesus comes to the church in the book of Revelation, and he says these words, You have lost your first love. You've lost your first love. And if you don't get it back, if you don't get this right, I'm going to remove that lampstand from your midst. So he's saying... You've lost your first love. You've lost dynamic love. And once you stop the dynamic phase, you really start dying because anything that's static is going to become entropic. What Jesus is saying here is that lukewarm Christians are a really bad advertisement for a really great God. And the lampstand, what's that, what's that all about? Well, in a way, you can look at it this way. The lampstand is kind of God's supernatural advertisement for a church. Word of mouth has nothing on a lampstand. Social media has nothing on a lampstand. Websites, billboards have nothing on God's lampstand. When God puts a lampstand by a church, what he's saying is, community, you can come here. You'll be led well here. You'll be loved here. When God sees a group of lukewarm people who have lost their first love, he can just remove the lampstand. He can just remove it. If your faith is not dynamic, if your love isn't dynamic, if you're just coasting, your faith is dying. It's dying. You have to keep it dynamic. And listen to me, friends. It's nobody else's job to keep your faith dynamic. It is your job. Your job alone. We have to pay attention to that kind of stuff. So I'll say this. Even though we're small here, I want us to use whatever influence we have To its very utmost, because we have to be faithful with what God gives us. If we have a little, well, let's use that to full capacity. I want us to let our light shine in our world just as powerfully and as brightly as it can. I want to use my influence with the people in my life in a way that God will be proud of and be happy with. I want all of us to be that way. So remember these words that Jesus spoke to Peter. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So here's a big question. What are the gates of hell in our city? What are the gates in our city? What fights again, against God's best for the people of Orlando? What distracts people, keeps them in bondage? I can think of a few things. Pleasure is one of them. Pleasures. We have so many options not just to occupy our time, but also our heart and our attention. I mean, think about it. Attractions, theme parks, pools, beaches, golf, tennis, soccer, baseball, racing, music, great outdoor weather. I mean, you name it. Other than snow, Orlando has it all. <laughs> and it all competes for the hearts of people. It competes for the attention of the people here in Orlando. So pleasure is definitely one of the gates. What can we do about that? We consistently proclaim the message, the truth that, Fulfillment does not lie in the realm of more and more indulgent pleasure (laughs) imbibing. There's no fulfillment there. It is in God alone. Pleasure is one of them. Greed is another gate. Greed is. I've been in some environments and listened to the conversations of upper and middle class folks. People with lots and lots of discretionary money. Know what their favorite topics of conversation are? Boats, cars, houses, vacations, financial strategies, and just how savvy they are. It's anchored in greed. That's anchored in greed. Not one time, not one time have you ever heard somebody say, You know, I have enough. I have enough. I'm not worried. I'm just thinking about how to give stuff away. Never once have I heard those words. So, greed's one. Another gate is poverty. Poverty. Although unemployment is at an historic low right now, lots of folks still have a hard time getting by. Some people don't want to be hard workers. Others really don't know how to be good employees and advance in their work in, in a way that can help them get ahead. That's why so many of us invest in jobs partnership, where we're waging war against that gate of poverty. It's effective work. Because, listen, there are folks that are behind those gates that Jesus died for, he has new life for them. He has better life for them. And we want them to become all that God created them to be. We could just sit back and wait for them to come to church. Or wonder why they don't come to church. But instead, we're partnering with other people to go get them and provide a need for them in a neutral environment. So poverty is a gate. Poverty is. Remember again these words from Jesus to Peter. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not, shall not prevail against them. You know, in the the very first formal mission of the church, comes in Luke chapter 10. Jesus sends out his followers um, to minister two by two. Sends them out two by two to go out and do ministry. That takes place in verse 17. Look what it says. Then the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord... We built a nice building. People think our music is cool. (laughs) It's not what it says. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Those are those are battle instructions, friends. I give you authority over. I cause you to trample upon. Those are violent words. Those are are fighting words. He's calling us to conflict, and he's equipping us for it. God's authority is the badge. God's power is the gun. He's saying, fight the good fight. Free those people that are in bondage. Go, don't wait for them to come to church. They can't right now. They're in bondage. They're behind gates. Get them out from behind the gates and they'll come to church. But you have the authority and the power to rip those gates off their hinges and free those people that I love so much. If you remember, you were behind those gates once. Don't you ever forget that. And when you're out there ministering in my name, you are displacing satanic authority. I want to give you a few things to take with you today that will help us go deeper into and be able to succeed in spiritual conflict. Before I give you those things, there's one one thing I want to make sure we're absolutely clear on because it's a really big deal. This might be the most important thing I say. We were made for conflict, we were made for war. But if we don't engage in spiritual war, we will occupy ourselves with far lesser battles. In other words, if we fail to see our real enemy, Satan, and engage him with the authority that's been given to us by Jesus, We'll still battle. We'll still battle. But we'll end up like Don Quixote, making up imaginary and secondary battles. Wars against our landlord and our boss and another soccer mom and our maintenance company and our business rival and our sloppy neighbors. All the stuff that makes up every sitcom on TV. We'll occupy ourselves with all these little battles. We will fight battles regularly, but it's supposed to be for the kingdom of God. All those lesser battles are the enemy's distractions, and he's very, very good at distracting us. All right. So a few things that we'll need to be successful as we go deeper in conflict, in stride with our very, very good God. The first thing is this. You can jot these down as we go. The first thing is hatred for the enemy. Hatred for the enemy. The only being that God allows us to hate with gusto is Satan, Satan. And I know we get hung up on that word. We flinch on that word hate. But think about this for a minute. Satan is a liar and the father of lies and the author of all evil. He is the instigator of war, violence, rape, murder, child abuse, all forms of cruelty and torture. He is behind greed, behind theft, behind terrorism, behind racism, behind all forms of prejudice. He's the one who pulls the strings. He's the one who pulls the strings. Now, there's plenty of spots in Scripture that affirm that it's just to have hatred for the enemy. Here's one of them. Here's one. Proverbs 6.16 says, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brethren. Every one of those characteristics mentioned is exactly what defines Satan and defines his activity amongst humans. Deceiving us into all those kinds of activities and more. It is just to hate Satan. But only Satan. The people around you are not your enemy. So we can hate Satan, and I think we don't hate him enough. Wanna know why? Because I don't think we believe in him enough. Here's a recent statistic. Almost 60% of American Christians, not Americans, American Christians. Almost 60% of American Christians say that they don't believe Satan's a real being. It's just a symbol of evil. 60%. No wonder we go to battle against each other. And against other people. We, we don't even believe we have a spiritual enemy. So any righteous anger we possess, we inflict upon the people around us, against each other. Now here's a reminder. Satan only responds to aggression. He'll never give up ground. We must take it from him. But also remember this. We're to be aggressive towards Satan only, not towards people. We're only loving towards people. Each one is an individual that God loves and Jesus died for so we have to have hatred for the enemy. Here's a second thing. We must have compassion for all people. Compassion for all people. Jesus came to seek and save the lost because he loves them passionately. We're to reflect the love of God towards every person that we come into contact with, like out there in our lives, not just the people between these walls here. Here's a thought worth thinking. Here's a thought. Worth thinking. The church is bothered because people aren't coming to us. What if God's bothered that we're not going to them? church is bothered because people aren't coming to us. What if God's bothered that we don't go to them? Get involved with the people in your world. Ask God to give you his heart of compassion for the people in your world. And live your faith outside of this room. Okay? Don't let Sunday mornings define your Christianity. Here's the third thing, last thing. We need active power and authority. Not, not awareness of our power and authority. We need active power and authority. Jesus gave us that authority. We already saw that. Then he gave us the power. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. What do witnesses do? They proclaim what, the truth of what they've seen and heard. He said, You'll be my witnesses. Here, there, everywhere. He gave us a mission, and he gave us the authority and the the power to fulfill it. He gave you a mission and gave you the authority and the power to fulfill it. So I say, step into your authority. I mean, it will mean going deeper into conflict, but don't forget this, folks. Don't forget this. It will take you deeper into conflict with the enemy, but if you're not fighting, you're losing you're not exempt. It's not that there's a fight going on over there. It's going on all around you and you're just losing and you're not aware of it. Engage the enemy with the authority and the power that God has given you. And you will see God at work in your life. both in- Internally and with the people around you. Why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray. Look, we are, we're grateful. Lord, first, I pray that our awareness level would rise. That there is spiritual war going on all around us. And, Lord, sometimes we are just oblivious. I know that I am. And, Lord, I I recognize and I confess that I speak these truths from a place of weakness. I can recall, even right now, fresh failures, even this week. This realm. And Lord, I know we've, we've all blown it, we've all been oblivious, but Lord, I pray that you would heighten our awareness of spiritual activity around us, spiritual warfare around us. Lord, you gave us authority and power for a reason. I pray, Lord, that we don't just ignore it and let it just wither and die. I pray that we would have active power and authority in our lives. So, Lord, I pray that you would do this work inside of us, Lord. We believe that you can do this. And we believe that you will, Lord, as we open our hearts and say, God, speak speak to me. Help me to see. Help me to perceive what's going on around me. Help me to perceive that that person is not my enemy. Help me to have the discernment to know that I'm being distracted right now to think that this human is my enemy when they're not. Help us to see behind the veil, Lord, at what's really happening. I know that you can do this, Lord. I know you can do this work inside of us. And now I believe that you will. I believe that this day and tomorrow, Lord, will be days of of increasing awareness, sensitivity, and engagement on our part. We believe you for this, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.